Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the podcast. Um, Augie is off selling seashells by the seashore. So we have today we have Patty Sobzak. She is the collection librarian in the areas of public affairs, political science, and business here at um, Cabell Library, Virginia Commonwealth University. She also has extensive experience in development and nonprofit interests. She used to teach in the nonprofit um, program here at VCU, and she is going to talk to us all about nonprofits. So hello, Patty. Hi, Nia. Thanks for having me. So you're not going to be thankful in a few minutes when I start I, asking you questions. But, but it's good that we're starting off that way. Yes. So um, so the document, we always, in this podcast, we attach a document to the discussion. And so this time we're attaching a 990. And a 990 is the tax form that organizations fill out. Yes. That nonprofit organizations fill out. Yes, they have to fill it out. Um, and so first, my first question out of the gate is, oh, sorry, we will link to that from the research guide as we do with all the other documents for the podcast. So my first question out of the gate is, what constitutes a nonprofit? Well, actually, a nonprofit, um, the U.S. defines a nonprofit uh, in the tax law laid down by the IRS. And surprising to a lot of people, a nonprofit can actually earn a profit more accurately an operating surplus. But the difference between that and a for-profit company is that the profit must be retained to invest in the organization and not dispersed to tax holders. To, ta- to tax holders? Oh, shareholders. Sure. Oh, no, that's okay. I, yeah. I, we say stuff all the time here. Yeah. So, um, so, so they can have shareholders, but they can't give them money. True. <laughs> they okay, that's weird. Yeah. But that's, but what, that's what separates them from... From yes. the profit for profit, yes. Because I was wondering. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude here, but the Catholic Church is listed as a nonprofit, and if one said that the Catholic Church did not have assets, one would be completely insane, mm-hmm. because it has many, many, many assets. Absolutely. The buildings, the property. There's stuff. Yep. I mean, they have a whole library that's full of books that are. There's one of which is priceless, and there's no way to actually price that. Absolutely. So they're allowed to have all that. They mm-hmm. just can't. If if they sold it, they'd have to put the money back into the church. Into the organization, yes. Okay. All right. They so, can't distribute it to shareholders. So so there's this mystical term, this 501c3. And the only reason I know that term is because I belong to one. I belong to a, a, a nonprofit organization, and that's what they call themselves. They call themselves a 501c3. Is that in reference to some specific thing, that number and letter and number combination? Well, actually, it is. It actually is a type of nonprofit. Um, and the majority of nonprofits that are able to receive tax-deductible contributions actually fall into this category. And some of the things, some of the types of organizations include educational organizations, um, religious, like you just mentioned, charitable, scientific, literary testing for public safety, and fostering certain national, international, and amateur sports competitions. Oh, so the Olympic Committee is a nonprofit? Yes. Oh, 
Yeah. Where do they get the big gold medals then? Mm. Oh, well, no, because you said they can make money. They, they just have to money. put it back into. And I assume that those medals are part of putting it back into the organization. I would say that's probably true, yes. Okay. So 501c3 refers to some part of the code. Is that mm-hmm. is that what it does? Yes, absolutely. Actually, there are over 40, excuse me, 30 IRS nonprofit designations, but the 501c3 is the most prominent. And so, and then actually it's broken down into two categories. There are public charities, such as like a community foundation or the SPCA. They are because oh, they... Because we love dogs. I know, we love animals. Um, oh, and, and cats. I mean, I didn't mean to be, I didn't mean to be catist. We love all animals. We love all animals. But also there's private foundations, and that would include the Clinton Foundation, oh. the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation. Those oh, are like private foundations. The Ford Foundation. Where they, they give away a lot of money to mm-hmm. things to, to improve, theoretically to improve the world. Yes. One could argue that... The, whether what improvement means, but we're not going to do that at, at, not, at this juncture. We're not going to debate that today. Excellent, because <laughs> that's that's we don't want to deal with that. No. So when you have a private foundation, I have a quick question about okay. that. So if so, a lot of times they're named for a person. You just mentioned Clinton. You mentioned the Gates. I mm-hmm. mentioned Ford, which was I think the original Ford mm-hmm. children, like the first few Ford. Children. I believe so. Yeah. So they're often named for a person. Mm -hmm. Is that because that family just has ginormous amounts of money and they make a foundation to give it away? Mm -hmm. Like that's... Oftentimes that's the case. Um, Sometimes you don't have to have a lot of money to do that. Sometimes you just have a philanthropic thread in your body and you want to do that. And so even if you have a modest amount of money, you can still start a foundation if you have causes that you really want to donate to. Uh Uh-huh. So if... Let's just say we wanted to create the Nia Augie Foundation for podcasting, right? Mm-hmm. So we could do that and we could pool our $8.12 mm-hmm. that we have. And then we could ask other people to give us money. Mm-hmm. And then we could support podcasting for the masses or that is, some other thing. That is absolutely possible. Okay. So so that's kind of a cool thing. Is that is that a good way to also not have to... Um, pay taxes on your money and that sort of thing? It can be a tax shelter as well. Okay, so yeah. people who give to those foundations, a lot of times they're doing that. Those are charitable That's foundations. That's a pre-tax sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. They're tax exempt. So let's just say that Augie and I wanted to make the Nia Augie Foundation of Awesomeness. That's what we're going to call it, the Nia Augie. And we're going to put my name first, dang it, because he's not here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> even though alphabetically that's totally incorrect. <laughs> So uh, I've already chosen the name. Mm-hmm. This is me. I have chosen the name. We are going to call it this thing. What what happens next? What's next? Well, there's actually several steps to set up a nonprofit. Um, of, of course of there are. Course are there, there regulations? Are. Yes. are there laws? There's laws, of regulations, and lots of obstacles. So it isn't for necessarily the faint of heart who oh, okay. want to do that. Um, and, and <laughs> I'm pretty faint of heart, but he's not. So, <laughs> so the start is actually to choose a name. Um, and then you actually have to file the Articles of Incorporation as a nonprofit. Um, and then you have to file for your IRS tax exemption. And there's actually a packet, a 1023, um, that is actually the application for recognition of exemption. So you said we have to file articles of incorporation. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular place we have to do that? Can we do that here in Richmond, or do we have to go do that in D.C., or do we have to, I mean, is there like is there a small town in Wyoming where everybody has to incorporate their their nonprofit, or does it just ma- it doesn't matter? You can it, do it from wherever you want. It, to do it's it. wherever you want to be. You can actually get all the documents online. 
Oh, okay. To do this, yes. So you don't have to be in some place specific. Not, not necessarily. Good. So if we're in Richmond, we don't have to travel to mm-hmm. D.C. to do that. Right. Okay, good. Okay, and then there's... Not that we don't like D.C. Yeah. Uh, please, if you're listening in <laughs> D.C., that's not what I mean. But if you've driven up 95 on a Friday afternoon, is not a pretty thing. No, if you drive up 95 any afternoon, it's well, not a pretty true. thing. Well, that's true. I don't know why I picked Friday. Yeah, let's, let's be serious here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what next? Well, then you have to actually apply for a state tax exemption. So there's the federal part of it, and there's also the state part of it. There are some states that are more um, friendly towards this. And if you ask me exactly what states, I couldn't tell you, but I think Delaware is one of them, where oh. you file um, for you know you file your papers as part of that. I don't know all the rules around that, but there are some states that are more favorable for this kind of thing, and oh. so it's worth investigating, Okay, though you can I, file them in any state. I've heard that Delaware is a place where a lot of people incorporate, and I assume that uh, that would be profit and nonprofit mm-hmm. for, for sort of friendliness reasons. I think so, yes. And there's probably <clears throat> different regulation or friendlier regulation there, excuse me, than there are in other places. Yeah. Okay, so something you'd want to research before you started. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. And then you actually have to draft bylaws. Um, if you've ever been, you've been part of a nonprofit, so you know that they can be very um, small and limited, or they can be rather extensive because they kind of spell out how this nonprofit is going to work, the things that they're going to be focused on, and then they have a structure involved, um, such as appointing directors. If you have a nonprofit, you have to have actually a board of directors. Really? Yes. Can your board of directors be? Oh, I don't know, me and Augie. But it usually have to have more people than just the oh, two okay because well, this is a decision we could do we could do terribly bad things if we just perhaps if we just decided to sit around and eat pizza and drink beer one night and give our money to bad things okay yeah so that kind of prevents you from making public mistakes with your money right at least it gives you a way of kind of monitoring the activities and then you actually have to hold meetings for this board of directors and you actually have to record that you've had meetings and you have to have minutes from these meetings so you have to have documentation <laughs> so that that's so, kind of scary huh? so Augie <laughs> ordered the pizza, Nia ordered the beer, they decided to do this thing is not sufficient minutes, probably. Probably there, not. There have to be more people in the room. Yes. Okay. And yes. they would have to say things other than, hey, man, pass me another beer and I'd like another slice of pizza. Something a little okay. a little bit more than that. And then actually there are, within jurisdictions, there are um, licenses and permits. So again, depending on where you form the nonprofit, each state and then each county has different licensing and permit laws whoa down to the county level mm-hmm. okay so can you be can, can you be a federal nonprofit but not a nonprofit within a certain state usually a nonprofit um, formulates within a state or a body so there is a state connection to it but like I'm sorry I didn't mm-hmm. ask the question properly let me ask it let me ask it in a different way so let's say that I incorporate in in Virginia mm-hmm. and and the, st- and the feds recognize me as a 501c3, mm-hmm. and Virginia recognizes me. Can I fundraise in Tennessee? Oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah. so once I have that recognition, mm-hmm. I'm not tied to my state. No. I can be national, international. In terms of raising money, absolutely. It's just that you have to abide by the laws of the state that you file in. So if you file for your nonprofit in Virginia, there's Virginia state licensing and permit laws that you also have to abide by. Okay. But you can go to Tennessee. You can go to Timbuktu But I don't to have to rec- I don't have to do Tennessee's laws. No. I have to do Virginia's mm-hmm. laws because yes. that's who I'm responsible because to. Because when you file 
file your 990, which we'll talk about in a little bit, it'll come out of your nonprofit, which is registered in Virginia. So so it behooves you to find a good state. But mm-hmm. your talk about research there at the beginning mm-hmm. is super important because if you can find a good state to incorporate in, then... That, I mean, as far as laws are concerned, mm-hmm. then, I mean, if you find the one that's the hardest and right. you do it there, you're just borrowing trouble that you don't need to borrow. Perhaps. Okay. Yeah. So if you wanted to do that research, you would need to talk to Patty because, <laughs> again, I can't help you with that research. But that's why we have specialists at the library who know all kinds of cool stuff. It's it's good. I mean, like anything, and being a librarian, I can't help myself. You you want to encourage people to do their research. You want them to enter into this. It's not, for, as I said earlier, not for the faint of heart. It really is a very structured environment, and you have things you have to do. And if you're not willing to do that, then you probably don't want to go down the path of forming a nonprofit. It is, in some ways, very cumbersome. Because there is documentation. You have to have these meetings. You have to have board of directors. You have to show why someone is a board of director. You have to actually have some logic around it. Oh, really? Yes. So you can't just appoint your bu- your buddies and your best friend. You'd have to, they'd have to actually have some knowledge of whatever the thing is you're doing or, or financial knowledge or how to be a phil- uh, philanthropist. I Sorry, I stumbled on the word there. Um, so, okay, so you can't just, like, this is my pet cat, and it's on the board of directors. Like, it what, has to be what has to make more s- formal more than that. sense. And think about it. If you really want this to be successful, you want to have talent on right. this board. You want to have, if you can get a lawyer. I mean, I'm always about kind of diversifying and getting talent. So someone maybe who knows HR laws, someone, you know, someone who's a lawyer would be really good. Someone who's a fundraiser would be really good. So you want to have this array of talent that you can draw upon that's going to be really interested in your cause. So you want to be kind of choose wisely. Okay. You know, yeah, with that. The cat may be a, a you know. An yeah. excellent <laughs> choice for mascot, but yes. not an excellent choice for a Pro- board of director Probably, member. yes. Okay. And remember, all the board of directors' names go on the 990, so it, it does get <laughs> so, out to everybody can look at that. <laughs> so Felis Rogers, uh, <sighs> that would probably be, eventually somebody would say, hey, doesn't that mean cat? Okay. <laughs> And would they want to give money to an organization that has a cat on the board of directors? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Not rational, smart people. Right. I, so that's the other thing is I assume the other thing that you use with your board of directors, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is they know people. Mm-hmm. Right. So you want people who know people. You mm-hmm. want people who are respected in their fields. Yep. You want people who carry that sort of patina of mm-hmm. awesome about mm-hmm. them because right. it will shine onto your organization. And you're going to be able to raise more money and you're going to be able to get into circles you might not be able to through your own associations but having your board of directors they should be like your circle of ambassadors and they should be out spreading the good word about your nonprofit and bringing in people as volunteers to raise money to come to events and all on this idea of raising money to support your nonprofit okay so it's so if you can find a celebrity who likes your cause that's super helpful because that, that can help unless unless they're in getting going to jail or something. Well, then yeah, probably not. celebrity for the right reasons, yeah. not for the wrong reasons. Exactly. But a, a sort of a well-respected or or celebra- celebrated person mm-hmm. would also help with that. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we've got some work ahead of us because I don't think we know any celebrities. Well, I'm sure <clears> you can do that. That's okay. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll figure. Augie knows everybody. He may know a celebrity. It wouldn't surprise me if he was like, "Oh, I'll just call up Heidi Klum and ask her to come over." <laughs> Because, you know, that's just who he is. So um, 
can can nonprofits stop being nonprofits? Like, can you lose your nonprofit status? Actually, you can. Um, and one of them is not filing your 990. So we're, again, we're going to talk about that more in detail. But it's kind of like if you as an individual don't file your taxes, after a while, someone figures out that you haven't filed your taxes yes. in 18 years, and they're probably going to be knocking on your door. So, so that's another thing is you have to hire a person who does that for your organization a who's treasurer, going to do the good a good job mm-hmm. and make sure that it's done properly. Yeah, you always want to have some people access to people that really know the laws and the laws change. So having someone that, you know, got their accounting degree in 1962 is great, but if they're not keeping up with everything, you want people that have this this current knowledge because they you want them to bring it back to you and say, "Hey, this year we have to do such and such." Okay. So you want to always have that very current um, you know, expertise. And part of the money you may be spending on your organization is is staff development, is mm-hmm. sending those people to conferences or sending them to classes that help them stay up on that sort of thing. And that's a legitimate use of the money, mm-hmm. right? That's a legitimate use of the money that you raise. Right. And also you can pay your board of directors a stipend to serve. So you serve on my board, you get, you know, $1,000 every time you show up at a meeting four times a year, or something, you know, to give them incentive to come and participate, but also gives them cachet. People love to put on their own resumes that they're on such and such a board because it looks good on their resume as well. Okay. Yeah. So it's a, it's a win-win. It can be a win-win. Are there are there other reasons that they can you can lose nonprofit status? Actually, there's a lot. One another one is the failure to pursue the activity stated in the original application, which is why you have to put. So we we raise lots of money. We don't give any money for podcasts. We just drink a lot of beer and eat a lot of pizza. A- absolutely, we're going to eventually get in trouble for that. Probably someone will eventually catch up with you. The other one is actually a nonprofit doing political campaign activity. Um, can cause problems. So, so PACs are not nonprofits then? No. Ah, yeah. so they're listed in a completely different way with the, mm-hmm. the government. Absolutely. So if you're, if you're a, let's say you're a church and you're campaigning, that's a no-go. That's a no-go. And also lobbying can, can get okay. you in trouble. So um, do you get a warning or do they just say, that's it, you're done? Well, I mean. I mean, how does that work? Is there, is the investigation sort of a, we just call you and say, we see you, and you need to knock that crap off. Or in the case of your 990, like if you didn't file your 990 and then you act, and then you said, we're really sorry, here's our 990 in what, July or August or September, whatever. Can you, is there mercy in the system? There is, and, and, part, and you'll never get a phone call. You'll always get a letter. And it's ah. just like you never, and when you see a letter that comes in the mail with IRS on it, you know it's probably not good news. <laughs> yeah, but you should open it. <laughs> yes. Uh, please, you listeners, you yeah. should open it and read it. Open the letter because, because it'll tell you, the, and most of the time, if you haven't filed your 990, they may ask you to cease and desist. In other words, you can't continue your nonprofit until you do the proper filings. Or oh. if they find, if they say we have evidence to show or we, you know, we, we believe that you are doing activities that are not stated in your organizational bylaws, then we, and so you can, you can actually do a hearing. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen. Sometimes you can solve it by filing the 990 and sending them a check. I mean, that, that could be that easy or it could be as complex as actually going in and having a hearing with okay. the IRS to dispute. You know, they're saying you're doing something, you dispute it, so you actually end up going, it's illegal situation. It can so there's investigators mm-hmm. and there's, there's Absolutely. A, basically a, a <clears throat> probably something sort of like a court in the sense that there's a person who does the arbitration and mm-hmm. listens to both sides and then says, yeah, oh, you didn't file a 990. We can't help you. You yeah. have to you have to do that. It's part of the law. Yeah. 
And, okay. and that's easy because there's evidence. So they can, you know, right. you a don't little have... harder for the if you, you haven't been doing what you said you were going to be doing. Right. I mean, if what you're doing, and I suppose there are some exceptions in the sense of, like, let's say that your nonprofit deals with disaster relief, and there's, thank goodness, no disaster this year. Mm-hmm. You you couldn't do the thing. So if you just went in and explained that, right, you probably would be fine. They would probably say, that's fine. Good on you because there's no disasters. That's great. Right. And then you would just continue to keep doing what you're doing. Well, and the, the, what that brings up is a good point about when you do, when you kind of um, file your original application is to not limit your scope so much that you're, you know, you limit your ability to do good work. So if you say we're only going to, you know, respond to, you know, disasters that kill more than 50,000 people, then you're kind of limiting your ability to go out and help people. If you make it broader to say, you know, any natural disaster or any man-made disaster, you kind of, you know, and you don't put a number of how many people have to die or how widespread it has or to a be. Location a location. Or location. Okay. Then you you give yourself that ability to uh, to do. So you can go a, in where there's a small tornado <clears throat> and unfortunately three people lost their lives, but it's but there still needs to be the community has still been devastated. Well, think of Alabama recently, and, right? And so said. you have to, you need to go in and be able to do that. Okay, yeah. so I see. So writing the bylaw is pretty important as far as. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. My guess is here that you would say I'd need to research that a little. Mm-hmm. And really, <laughs> can and I see other people's bylaws? Can I look at similar organizations? Do most of them have them in a sort of public? Um, yes Public and no. Way. Some do and some don't. If you have a bit for your organization that you were talking about earlier, I'm sure you could get to see the bylaws. They're not necessarily published anywhere, you know, in a, in a normal sense. But you can, if you know nonprofits, you can probably get access to some. What is is but. When you're talking about scope, you're also talking about their mission, right? Mm-hmm, so right. you could see their mission. Almost all of them give you their mission statement, right? right? Which right. is because they're that trying to attract donors. Mm-hmm. Generic, generic thing that you might want right. to use to start writing your bylaws of. Mm-hmm. We want to help all people in terrible circumstances every day of the year, that kind of thing. Yeah, look up the Red Cross, okay. and you can start there. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would imagine mission, yeah. theirs is pretty broad. Okay. <laughs> So, but yes, you can get reinstated. Um, sometimes it's as simple as just, you know, doing the 990s that you've missed and getting up to current, and then they then you can now continue your work. Um, and then um, again, if you get gigged or get you know in trouble for doing things that aren't in your original you know application. You can say, okay, it might be as simple as writing a letter to the IRS saying, okay, we're going to cease and desist that activity. We're only going to do that, and they may monitor it. But so you can get reinstated, and, and to the level and to the degree of how the and how big the hammer is with the IRS. I mean, I've been audited, so I can tell you they have a big hammer for sometimes for you know for a tiny little nail. But you know. I think the real words of wisdom are just don't get in trouble. Don't give the IRS any reason to question what you're doing so you don't have to face these kinds of things because it gets messy, it gets expensive, and sometimes it just diverts your whole focus on what all the good you're trying to do is now trying to solve tax problems. You don't want to do that. So it comes back to hire good people and make sure they have the ability to do the job and... Right. The access to whatever it is that they need to do the job. Mm-hmm. So what the heck's a 990? Uh, is a 990, like, is, does it look like my 1040 easy? Kind of, yeah. It, it, okay. it, it resembles a tax form, and you'll notice, you know, the boxes and the way that it tallies things. It looks very similar to, like, a 1040 IRS form that you would fill out as an individual. 
Um, it does have a lot more information on it. It has things such as you have to list all of your assets and liabilities and accounting information. You know, how much money did you bring in? How much money did you spend? You actually have to show the salaries of the top people. Really? Yeah. So if you have an executive okay. director, you have to show what they make. And then the executive, you know, the high level executives in the nonprofit, you have to, you have to show what they make. Which is a good thing to research, just as a side note, if you're going to give money mm-hmm. to people. Um, yeah. I mean, we can reverse this in the whole, if you're not making a nonprofit, but you want to give money to a nonprofit, doing the research to understand how much is going to administrative costs, because that can be a, that can be an, a, a very large part of the money, in which case they're not doing as much with your charitable donation as you might like. Yeah. And, and what I will say about that is that um, when there's a big debate in the nonprofit community about how much executive directors should make. There was a big stink a few years back. I forget the charity that hired <clears throat> a very talented executive director, and they were paying them $600,000, and everyone was like, no one should make that kind of money. Yet, my, my comment is, if they're able to bring in $50 million, that 600000 pales in that ability. If they have the connections and the ability to do that, then they're worth their money. So you have to kind of not just look at the salaries as, as numbers just by themselves. You have to look at them in respect to what the charity is doing, how much money they're bringing in, you know, who's on the board. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a entire picture, individual Pieces of it are not going to tell you the whole story. You really have to look at it in total. And that's what the 990 allows you to do is to look at all these pieces and kind of tell the story of this nonprofit because it has the charity status. Is it a 501c3, the mission, the program information? Talks, if we talked about pay for, for top staff members, the trustees, um, outside fundraisers, if you're using a contract service, um, independent contractors that maybe write grants or something. The fundraising costs, you know, my bias, I hate events. Probably shouldn't say this out loud. I think there's, there is this tendency for- Fundraising non- events, you mean? Yeah, there's a, a tendency for nonprofits to want to have events, and I just, I, I just really bristle at that, only because events take up so much time and money and personnel and volunteers, and I always look at opportunity costs. So if you're having this gala- that brings in $100,000, but it costs you $75,000 to put it on, you're only netting $25,000, yet you've spent six months of time and energy and capital and volunteer time to put something, to do something that is, sometimes sometimes events cost more than they bring in. And yet you'll see all the time there's such a, a push within nonprofits to do events. And I just, I always, when I when I was in the business and I was a fundraiser, I would always say why we have to be clear why we're doing this and what we hope to get out of it before we even start. Can I can I push back a little? Yeah. So as a person who has been invited to a couple of events because I, I am well acquainted with an individual who takes me to things um, as her as her buddy and for that I am very grateful. I've been to a couple of these events and part of what I perceive them for is to reward the people who give you money, right? There, yes. there does seem to be some level of that. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're not spending a huge amount, I see what you're saying about the sort of return on investment, right? Mm-hmm. Like how much are we putting in versus how much are we getting out? Right. But sometimes what you're getting out is goodwill. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that 
some events are probably a good idea mm-hmm. because it gets people those sort of warm fuzzy where they all sit in a room and say, aren't we fabulous? We gave money to this organization. Yeah, and, thank you events and, and recognition. You know, we love us kind of things, which I think is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the only way that, that, that I would have ever met some of the people at NPR mm-hmm. that I like is, is through my friend's contribution to my being able to go. Absolutely. Um, she gives the money and I get to go, which is awesome. That's friend. the way to work. As the, that's the best kind of friend to have. You can't go sometime. Um, I want to go. Okay. She's, but those events are not, they're not huge key. They're, they're relatively low key. I mean, they don't do, you know, champagne, caviar kind of things, but they do bring in people from NPR or people from WCVE and they show you things like a couple of times she's taken me to documentaries that they've shown ahead for mm-hmm. the for the um, people who donated. Right. They didn't have a huge spread. They didn't mm-hmm. spend a lot of money, but it was a nice event and I watched people be excited about giving their donation. So that does seem to be a good reason, but I can see where you're saying you wouldn't want to do that all the time. That that it, it would become old, I suppose, to have those events too often because then it wouldn't be celebratory. It would just be obligatory. Obligatory. Well, I, I I think, and I don't disagree with anything you said. My only comment is that just be clear on what you're doing. So I really love events that thank people. One of the <clears throat> most um, greatest way to earn money is to have an award ceremony you're honoring someone i mean the national they have national philanthropy day and it's a national event so all over the country um, and it's usually through the association of fundraising professionals they nominate local people as philanthropists of the year and they invite them to come well if they're nominated and or if they win they're going to bring their people to see them win so when you have someone <clears throat> from genworth that's winning an award they're going to probably buy you know, six tables at $1,000 each for the luncheon to to watch them get their award. And so there's ways of doing that that makes sense, and I think that's one that's been highly successful. I love the idea of thank you events. My only comment is just be clear why you're having the event. Okay. Um, oftentimes, you many times when the event is, is going to happen, no one can really answer that question, and that's my only my only worry is that if you're holding an event just to have an event that's not a good reason if you're thanking people if you're um, showing a documentary if you have a purpose and you know what that purpose is and you know who you're trying to attract that's great and also the other thing about events that is good is that that fun, that you know raising money is social that um, if you go to an event I'm sure you have where you're eating a meal and they have these donation cards on the table and you and if someone picks one up and writes a check there's a social many people feel like they need to do the same thing so this giving is oh, very social peer pressure peer pressure is yeah. very very social it's very interesting um there's actually a lot of you know psychology around it i was going to say i bet you've studied <clears throat> that it's very interesting and and so that's why you do that and you announce big gifts because it does predicate other people saying oh uh, if so and so gave 10,000 i want to give 12 and i want to give 15 oh i was at a thing with dr Rao where he announced a, a multi-million dollar gift mm-hmm. from the rights mm-hmm. and I think that it must have spurred at least some competitiveness in the room for people who could compete like I'm like <laughs> I will never be would you like my $50 that I give the university every year um, <laughs> right but so I'm not I'm not in that level that scope of competitiveness but it was interesting and I wondered why he named the amount and that's why because mm-hmm. he was thinking if there are other wealthy people in the room who would like to and I don't mean compete in a bad way. Yeah. I mean, there's a 
there's that you're what you're talking about that sort of peer pressure sort of oh yeah i can Absolutely. i can match your donation yeah. or i can do it which is what they do when they do the spring drive uh, fun drive on the radio mm-hmm. npr will say there's somebody who will match your donation if mm-hmm. you'll just call in right that that helps them, I assume, because I feel good because now my my donation is essentially doubled. Right, right. So there's some positive mojo that comes from that. So yeah. I could see that. Yeah, there's okay. a lot of psychology and there's a lot of reasons to have a lot of people in the room and a lot of people that can give. And sometimes if someone's on the fence, if they're not really sure and they go to an event and they're very impressed, then they will give. And the other thing is that people that give large amounts usually don't start out giving a large amount. They give a small amount and they see how they're treated. Oh, Are they invited to okay. events? Are they thanked? Are they treated? with respect and dignity are their wishes being honored which is a whole nother thing about donations and and if you get a donation and you don't do what you're supposed to do that's also a problem oh that art case <clears throat> that art case where somebody gave a painting to one of the university i can't now i'm and i'm blanking I can't too the, yeah uh, it's not george mason it's somebody else but anyway they gave a painting to them and the university sold, sold it, it. And the people who gave it basically said, basically had a cow. And Mm -hmm. with reason, they said, Mm -hmm. no, no, we wanted the university to have that painting, not have the, we we would have given them the money. I think it was William and Mary. I think it was William and Mary. We would have given them the money Mm -hmm. if if all they needed was the money. Like we wanted them to have the painting. Right. Because the painting was important. And they got it back from whoever they sold it from mm -hmm. because the donors basically said, what are you doing? Absolutely. Um, Except I'm sure they said it with more legalese than that. Yeah, yeah, and there's it's that's really interesting too. When you give, I mean, there was a, a big case with a Ivy League university, and I forget which one it was, where um, a family donated millions and millions of dollars to build a science building, and the science building was never built, and they sued the university, and they won, and there was punitive damages. So that's the other part is that people may give you money, and that's great, but if they have restrictions, they do pledge agreements. Or they have a, there's usually a document that goes along with each donation. And oh, if you okay. if you both sign it, it's a legal document. And if the, the charity does not do, if someone has specific needs, I want you to build a science center on donating this painting and it has to stay here until the place burns down or whatever it is, right. the, the charity has to honor that or else they can get in trouble. Well, and I assume then you get a reputation for not doing what? It's not good. What people have, I mean, yeah. it's just a bad idea it's all around. It's a bad idea, but it happens. Although, well, and I'm, I'm assuming that in some cases, like in the case of the painting, my guess is that grandfather gave the painting, and 30 years later, the person who was in charge of the painting didn't know that there was a thing yeah, and didn't think to check. Yeah. They were just like, great, we can sell this piece of art and buy a different piece of art or buy other pieces or do something else. Mm-hmm. But it does seem kind of egregious. I'm giving you the money to build this building and you just don't build the building. Mm-hmm. That seems like, well, and if you don't want to build the building, don't take the money. A- absolutely. Right? Like that's the way you get around that is if somebody says, I'm going to put such restrictions on this that it basically ties your hands from doing what you came here to do, mm-hmm. then you say, well, thanks, we appreciate that. You should find a different organization to donate. Yeah, and, and you know, and I, and I always say that sometimes you shouldn't take the money. I mean, I was in a situation where we had um, in our, I worked for a college in California, and a large donor, large organization wanted to give us a, you know, six, seven-figure amount of money, which was a lot of money for a program, but they wanted us to be, they were, we were in Orange County, they were in LA, and they expected us to have them be number one in every sense of the word. In other words, they wanted us to treat them like they were the only donor. 
and we had many, many donors that needed attention as well, and they put such restrictions on that money that we actually turned it down. We said, thanks, but no thanks. We can't do what you're asking us to do. We can't give you the kind of you know, treatment that you're asking. And so we actually walked away from the money. It was really hard because uh, well, <laughs> we yeah. could really use the it's money. Hard, right, hard it was to for, walk away from seven figures. Yeah, it was for a speech pathology program. It was just in its starting stages, but the what they what, the, how they wanted us to treat them was something that we just could not do. We just did not have the capacity, the bandwidth to do, and we had to walk away. And it was really hard. So, so your development people really need to understand the contracts and what's being asked of them. And if somebody's making a cause a billion dollar uh, donation, but they they want some crazy weird thing like I want you to stop teaching English. You know what I mean? Like as a mm-hmm. university, we yeah. would never stop. We would never just destroy the English department. I don't care how big a gift we got. Yeah. We would just wouldn't do that mm-hmm. because it's not part of, I mean, that's part of an education and that's what the university does. Absolutely. So we would never take money from an organization, even if they said we will give you, we will fund the university for the next hundred years. But you can't have an English department. The university would say, oh, thank you, no. Yeah, that's You're going right. to need to approach a different school because mm-hmm. we, we love our English department. We love our English professors. We think that students deserve to study, I don't know, Shakespeare, whatever it is that they study in right. the English department, awesome things. Yeah. And we think that that's a valuable thing. Can I just side note that, yeah. um, so one of these things that I went to where I was listening to Dr. Rao, the people who were sort of, I don't want to say working the room because that's not what they were doing. They were being very friendly and very, they were sitting down at tables where there might be one or two people and sort of getting a conversation going and stuff. like. A lot of them were student ambassadors. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that, that having people in your organization come and talk to potential donors about why they like your organization is killer smart mm-hmm. because oh, absolutely because donors these donors love to hear students stories mm-hmm. they love to hear why they're in school and what they're going to do when they get out and why they wanted to study this thing and why vcu as opposed mm-hmm. to any other school right because a lot of them went here and they connect on some level of mm-hmm. me too that's how i felt that's how i felt when i came here and now i am sort of heartwarmed and um, in the organization that I belong to, we did that occasionally. Mm-hmm. We would, when we would host things, we would have people who had been in the organization for a very long time explain why they liked it. So mm-hmm. it, I, do most organizations do things like that? They sort of bring in their long-term hardcore volunteers? and Well, they should. Um, okay. they, they don't so always. it's a best practice? It's a best thing? practice to you. If you have an event, again, and you, have, you never want someone, a guest, to walk in a room and not be approached and not be felt like they're welcome and not be, you know, kind of introduced to people. And that's the whole idea of the student ambassadors. I mean, that's what's great about a university right. is that there's a lot of student ambassadors. And in a lot of ways, you're, especially if you're raising money for scholarships and these are the recipients of that, then the students have a reason to be there to thank the people. But even if they're not directly tied to to that donor, they have benefited and they love their their university and they've had a great experience. And so, absolutely, having someone at every table that can talk up the organization. So you, it's very strategic. It's very important. Again, that ties it down to events. Why are we having this event? And if we can't staff it properly, if we can't have those people to welcome people, to talk about the organization, to make sure everyone is engaged, then you're really missing a lot of opportunities in an event. Okay. So. That you, you noticed that correctly. I, it was really nice. And I, I have to say, they came over to the table where I was sitting with, with the person who brought me. Um, again, 
I, I, I'm not in that caliber of my on my own yet. But I hear you on the. I, I mean, I've changed my donations over the years as, as I've seen improvements at the university. I went from zero to where I am now, mm-hmm. um, because I, I believe in that, um, sort of the mission mm-hmm. of of the university. <clears throat> this university in particular, not just because I'm an employee, but because I also just like it. Mm-hmm. But I, I, they came over to our table, and when they found out that we were librarians, they were just, oh my goodness, we love the library. And it was, it was a really nice connecting moment for me with these students who I didn't know individually, but I were so excited about what they were doing. Yeah. So if you do start a nonprofit, it seems to me like that's a really good idea is to find people who engage either on the topic mm-hmm. or on the group itself and are able to articulate a good message for you and are sort of outgoing people. I don't know that it would be good to have a an entire nonprofit of, of um, introverts. Because I'm not sure that anybody would give you money. Like one of the reasons, I mean, Bill Gates is is relatively introverted. His wife is not. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Clinton is not an introvert in any way, right? He's extremely extroverted. So I think that those people seem to be successful is this idea that you have extroverted people who will and that doesn't mean your accountant has to be extroverted because <laughs> those people hardly ever are extroverted. But that but that sort of that feel to it seems to work really well. Well, I, I'm going to push back on that because okay. I, I'm an introvert. Okay. And you were a killer fundraiser. I was a killer fundraiser. Okay. Yeah. So because I, had I clearly a, don't know what I'm talking about. Well, no, what I would say is that for me, <laughs> I mean, introverts, they're, it's really how they get their energy. Um, we can have another conversation about that. But what for me, it was all about purpose. And I knew why I was doing what I was doing. I was so clear on that. And it mattered so deeply to me that You know, because of that, it wasn't about me. It never was about me. It was always about the mission. And so introverts are very good fundraisers because, and you know why else? Because they listen. Sometimes extroverts Mm. take over the conversation where really fundraising, really successful fundraising is all about listening and really understanding your donors and understanding what matters to them. And you can't get that when you're talking. You have to listen. So introverts actually can make very, very good fundraisers. And um, so I think it's more a matter of what, what they're driven by, what matters to them. And for me, it was all about the mission. It was all about, for me, it was scholarships and students and equipment and, and you know, really elevating the library. It was it was just really mattered to me. So in that sense, I was absolutely fearless. I mean, I, and I still am. I can call anyone. I may, <laughs> I may not be the life of the party, but I can call anyone anytime. I can make a cold call. I can approach anyone anytime moment and have a conversation with them and I think part of that is because I'm a really good listener but but so it's really interesting I think having a charismatic person in charge of the organization is really helpful I think Bill Clinton is incredibly charismatic I think that Melinda Gates is much more than Bill charismatic so I think that's a factor but really the boots on the ground are people that are really good listeners that are really observe and watch people you walk into someone's office for the first time you look at the pictures on their wall you see what degrees they have you see where they went to school you see, how, you know, if they go well, fishing or whatever. And if and they have 800 pictures of their grandkids, <laughs> then you bring that up. You, yeah, you know. it's a point of conversation, and yeah. you find connecting points with them. But the best way to do that is really to listen, to ask a lot of really good questions, and make them feel like they're being heard. And that's probably the most important lesson I learned is letting people be heard and, and honoring their wishes. And that's part of the job is to do that. Okay, so don't start a nonprofit if it's all about you. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> okay. Um, so where where can you find 
990s. Well, um, the IRS website, irs.gov, actually, if you go there, you can, um, they have information about 990s and what they are. You can actually get the forms on there. But if you want to look at a company's 990, unfortunately, it's very, very difficult through the IRS website to find that. You can actually order one, though. You actually have to go and order one, and they will send you a paper copy. And it's nominal fee, you know, $3, $5, but it might take a month to get it. So there are other places to go, and we will have a link to those, such as Charity Navigator, GuideStar, that are actually um, private organizations that have information about nonprofits. So you can look on, on there and get information about a charity. I also suggest going to the website. I always want to see what in, oh, of the organization. of the organization to see and, and you know if you can get the 990. I teach a nonprofit class and I always have my students look at the website and look at the 990 and see if there's any discrepancies. That's always an interesting exercise to do oh. to see what people claim and then to look at what they really do. Because they're probably not going to lie in their 990 since that's the feds. They really should. They're more likely to lie or not lie but to fudge. And, and to gently, to gently elevate. obfuscate. Yes, yes. Um, on, on the their, side of on positivity. Their website versus, I mean, in the 990, they're going to put down what they actually owe and what they actually have because they know that that's, if they were investigated, as you said before, a giant hammer upon them would be mm-hmm. would be painful. Yeah. Whereas if you fib on a website, there's no real law against that. Uh, see Facebook. Yes. Where people say all the time that they're two inches taller and 40 pounds lighter than they actually are. And, and 20 years and, younger. you know, Tinder and lots of other dating and, and, and all kinds of and Instagram where you can manipulate your image to be pretty much whatever you wanted. But yes, I always look like a kangaroo. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's not illegal. It's it not, might be slightly immoral, but it's not illegal. It, but as far as your 990, if you're not accurate, you can you can get You're yourself in trouble. in trouble. Yeah, okay. you can. You really, um, you know, create the opportunity for trouble if you're not completely um, legitimate on your 990. So that's the true story of an organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the clearest picture you're going to get. Yes. So if you if you have a million dollars, listeners, and you don't want to give it to the Nia Augie nonprofit for podcasting, um, which I don't blame you because I'm not sure I would give it to us either. Um, <clears throat> we we would urge you then to get the 990 of the organization, maybe not just one, but maybe for the last few years, mm-hmm. right? And compare that to their website, really and investigate their an- them. And, and their annual report. Usually nonprofits do an annual report kind of talking about what happened last year. So it, it's, it, you know, and being a librarian, so this is my headset. I look, I want to investigate everything probably way too much. But it is, you have many points of, you know, that you can look at. And, and I suggest you do that because, you know, we all work hard for our money. And I think of, I put myself in the donor's, um, you know, kind of perspective. And I think of who, why would someone give money to this organization? And so you have to portray yourself as, as really being very consistent. So your 990 matches your website and matches your annual report to the best degree possible. And because you're trying to portray a, an image and a reputation and then fulfilling the real goal of the organization. If you have a mission, actually, you know, <laughs> going do that, thing. do that mission because you'll be surprised how many times that gets kind of lost in the conversation. Well, and as a side note, a million dollars to Bill Gates is a hundred dollars to a person who donates that on an annual basis mm-hmm. from their regular salary. Right. I mean, percentage-wise, 
if you're giving anything, you should know who you're giving it to. Absolutely. You should know what their purpose is. Absolutely. And there's plenty of ways to find that out. We're going to put links to that. Um, we will also attach, if if uh, Patty doesn't mind, we'll attach her email to this particular podcast um, uh section in our research guide so if you did have a question you could email her and say can you point me to something where i can read about this um again it is not we will not provide these things to you we will show you how to get them for yourself Mm -hmm. but like all research that's done in the library we don't do it for you Mm -hmm. um we help we teach you to fish as opposed to giving you a fish because if we just handed out fish this building would be really smelly yeah um Thank you so much, Patty, for coming today and for talking to us about 501c3s and nonprofits and 990s and all that stuff. Uh, If you have any questions about this, again, our email is on that um, website, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Nia. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.